Welcome to A Dying Podcast. My name is Nils. In the background, you potentially might hear my son, who is now four weeks old. In today's episode, I will not have a conversation with my son, but instead with Brad Warner. Brad Warner is a name I had not heard of until recently when my friend Jose told me about him. Brad has an interesting background, having started out as a punk rocker and then becoming a Zen Buddhist monk. Along the way, he's written a number of books, most of which, or I should say all of which, have really cool titles. My favorite one, title-wise, is probably Sit Down and Shut Up. Really good title. So obviously, I had to reach out to this guy and see if he could teach me a bit about Zen Buddhism, sitting Zazen, and things like this, and what potential value that could be in a person's life. Brad is based in LA, uh, which means we had to do this conversation on the internet. That always brings with it certain challenges audio-wise, and um, you might hear some of the trash guys working in Brad's garden or yard or somewhere in his background throughout this conversation. And I was a little bit tired in Stockholm, so I ended up dropping my phone a couple of times, bumping into the microphone accidentally. Hopefully that will still be fine because the conversation, at least to me, brought a lot of new insights into this field of Zazen Zen Buddhism and also Brad as an interesting guy, an interesting human being. So that said, I give you a conversation with Brad Warner. Cool. So now we're recording and I'm still annoyingly enough hearing myself, but uh, we're just going to have to deal with that. In okay. today's uh, episode, I'm talking to Brad Warner, who a friend of mine recommended me to reach out to. So hi, Brad. How are you? Uh, hi, I'm, I'm doing all right. Cool. Could you let's start with where are you? Where am I? Uh, well, I'm in Los Angeles, California right now, sitting in my kitchen, which is where I sit most of the day writing books. Uh, yeah, uh, it's not where I'm from, though. I, I uh, was born in Ohio in the Midwest of the United States and then lived in Japan, lived in Nairobi, Kenya when I was a kid and then lived in Japan for a long time. And now I'm living in Los Angeles. Cool. Why L.A.? Why L.A.? Well, there's a whole story, but I, I don't know if it's that interesting. I, I worked in Japan for a film and television production company called Tsuburaya Productions and did that for 10 years. And then they got the idea that they wanted to set up an office in Los Angeles and they wanted me to be the, the guy in that office. So they sent me out here initially but then that job fell apart, and I just decided to stay in Los Angeles. So, basically, when reading about you online, the sort of elevator pitch about who you are is punk rocker turned Zen monk. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's it's reasonably correct. It's it's more marketing than reality. I mean, it is not it's not untrue, but uh, I, I think it gives a weird impression. It, it's sort of like uh, you you always hear the stories. I don't know if you get these in Europe, but there's this sort of standard story in America where the guy is, oh, God, he's like a gambler and a drug addict and whatever, and then he finds Jesus, and then he becomes a, a preacher of, of the Lord. And when people hear punk rocker turns Zen monk, I think they imagine that's my story, but it's it's not really. I, I, I'm, I'm actually still in a punk rock band, and... And uh, we're going to play in about two weeks. So, Oh, cool. So let's start yeah. there. Tell us about the band. Well, the band is called Zero Defects, and they started in the early 80s in Akron, Ohio, which is where I was. And they had a few bass players before me, but I, I went and saw this band and really loved them because I thought they're their whole thing was so completely over the top i couldn't even comprehend it at first i think the the first time i saw zero defects i did not know that they were actually playing songs i thought they were just kind of getting up on stage and and making weird noises for half an hour and then i heard that they were looking for a new bass player because their bass player quit and i thought oh i want to join this crazy band that doesn't 
<laughs> just does, you know, whatever they want. And when I got to the first rehearsal, I found out, oh, these songs are actually like they have chord changes and their structures and things, which I had not realized. Their 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 bass players they had before me were, uh, well, I don't know. the fr The first one, I, I I think they were both not very committed to the band. And so, and so I think that was part of the problem with the, with the way they sounded. So I was really interested in the band and, and tried to make it work better. Anyway, we, we broke up in the, in the 80s, and I went to Japan and did a lot of stuff. And then in 2005, there was this event being held in Cleveland, Ohio, where they were going to reunite a bunch of the local bands from that era and play this one show you know, kind of bring back the old days. And we played on that show and, and none of the, as far as I know, none of the other bands that played on that show are still doing anything, but we are. <laughs> so we kind of decided we'll just stay together and, and pursue this thing and see where it goes. So we're still, we're still doing it uh, 13 years later. <laughs> cool. And does it, do the songs now sound like songs or is it still just weird noises? No, I think they sound like songs now. I mean, you could you could argue it's hardcore punk, so so some of it's pretty aggressive and tuneless. But I, I, we kind of decided after we reunited that there was no reason we had to stick to the original format that strictly. So so things have kind of gotten a, a bit looser. Like we did we did a an album. Uh, few years ago in which we have a nine minute song with a sitar on it and and it's it's just classic punk you know it's rock. not the, yeah it's not really punk rock as much as it used to be cool. but i think it's better now we still play those old songs too so well it's a good good thing that it's getting better and not the other way around after 13 years yeah, yeah. all right so so the zen thing is perhaps yeah. obviously what i'm i'm curious about and and since we haven't spoken before, and this is sort of what I tend to do, I just, I don't jump on the phone. I jump on, I try to jump on Discord, but that isn't, didn't work today. And then Skype uh, refused to log me in. So, so now we're actually recording this through Google Chrome on a website. Uh, see what that turns the audio into. But anyway, what I do is I start speaking to interesting individuals and then we have a conversation and see where it leads. And since I don't, know you i know a little bit about you yeah. but not that much mm -hmm. it'd be great to hear sort of what's the the core of your story in whichever way you want to share that yeah i i i've told this story so many times that i'm likely to fall asleep while i'm while i'm telling it but i'll tell it again uh i, I uh I was in that band zero defects in the early 80s and i was a university student and I took this class called Zen Buddhism, which I just signed up for it. I don't know how universities over there work, but it was one of these situations where you have to have a certain number of hours to be a full-time student, and I, I needed to fill it up. And the, at the last minute, I added this class called Zen Buddhism, like, oh, that'll be fun. I think I was a philosophy major at the time. I changed my major subject a few times. So I added this class called Zen Buddhism, not really knowing what it was. And I, uh, I just, I, I heard the philosophy of Zen Buddhism and heard about the practice of it, and I thought, oh, this makes perfect sense. It, uh, in an, in a lot of ways, it reminded me of what, at least the band I was in was trying to do in punk rock, which is to be completely honest and not, and uh, have no sort of fixed belief system. So. So I thought Zen was a religion and Buddhism was a religion, but it, it really isn't. I mean, there's certain forms of Buddhism, which I think you could call religions, but the Zen form isn't. And you have no belief system. You, you're just kind of uh, looking into what is real uh, using this method called Zazen, which is a form of meditation. I, I hesitate to even call it meditation because it's so different from what most people think of as meditation. It looks the same, you know, you sit still and, and, uh, and don't do anything, but internally you're not trying to make any change happen. You're just trying to get into the, the full experience of doing this one thing, which happens to be sitting very, very still. 
and you're not trying to find God or find peace or, or anything like that. You're, you're just sitting with whatever happens when you sit. I'm curious because this is something that I'm personally interested in. I've done it a few times, but I, I don't do it as a regular practice yet. But could you get into even more like the specific details for anyone who's listening who's like, oh, this is the first time I'm even hearing of this. If I want to try this right now uh, after I've listened to the to this podcast, I sit down, I, I try to sit still. Is that it? Is it eyes closed, eyes open? Or is there anything well, else to it? The, the normal way to do it is you get a cushion, which is called a Zafu, but you can use anything. When I first started for the first maybe five years, I didn't have a, a Zafu. So I just used the pillow from my bed or, or something like that, or a rolled up towel worked really well. So you use a small cushion and you sit on it in, in such a way that your hips are higher than your knees. So your knees are, are touching the ground and you kind of cross your legs in whatever way works for you. Uh, we sit with eyes open and facing a wall and the main thing to do i always tell people when i instruct it is it's like a balance pose so if you do yoga there's certain poses like the tree pose where you're standing on one leg and trying to balance well this is a similar thing only you're you're not really giving yourself a big physical challenge towards balance but what you find is it's it's kind of difficult to remain in a position where you're just letting gravity hold your body up so so that you can just stay perfectly situated this is why we use the cushion on the floor it, people do sometimes do zazen in chairs but i think if unless you have a physical problem that prevents you from sitting on the floor on a cushion then you you should do it on the cushion because that's where you get the full effect of the balancing. Cool. Where do you uh, keep your hands at this point? Oh, you put your hands in your lap in a, a position they call the cosmic mudra, which is your right hand is on the bottom, your left hand is on the top, and your thumbs touch, making a kind of a, a circle. Uh, you can't see what I'm doing, but uh, if you go online and search cosmic mudra or search zazen, I'm sure you'll find pictures of it. But yeah, so you just kind of put your hands on your lap and you're not trying to make your thoughts do anything specific, but you're also trying not to use your time in Zazen to sit there, you know, thinking about what you're going to do tomorrow and what she said to you yesterday and all that. You're, you're trying as much as possible to let the thoughts kind of go as they as they bubble up. You don't hold on to any of them, just kind of let them happen. And and that's pretty much it. <laughs> and I've done this for 35 years or something crazy like that. So Yeah, and that's obviously interesting because if you've never done this or any type of meditation, the way you describe it sounds like, well, what's the point? <laughs> uh, well, so that's, that's the point. That is the point, right? <laughs> the point. The point is what's the point? So it's it's what we call a goalless practice. So there's no there's no end game involved. There's no there's no trying to get to somewhere, which is which is significant because most of our lives we're trying to do something that was trying to accomplish something in the future, and we miss our uh, life at the present moment because you know our minds are are constantly two weeks ahead or or whatever they are you know, kind of contemplating what's going on in the future or what's going on in the past. And we're, we're losing this, this essential moment that is the only moment we can ever be in is this, is this present moment. You can't, I, somebody said this, so I don't want to take credit for it, but I can't remember who, but a friend of mine was saying, you know, this, this be here now philosophy is presented as if you have a choice, you know, like you have a choice to be here or now or not, but you, you don't have a choice. So all we're acknowledging is that we are here now and we're going to try to see directly what that is. Cool. So you're saying there's not really, there's no point to be made. There's no perhaps no purpose, but there is an effect for a lot of people, right? Well, yeah, there is an effect. And it's sort of, a lot of Zen teachers like to avoid saying that there's an effect, but uh, I would say there is. I noticed when I first started doing it, I was pretty young. I was a teenager and I was full of hormones and craziness. And at, in that in that phase of my life, I found that it helped settle some of that down. So I wasn't 
feeling the this sort of painful feeling one feels when you're young that you're like ah I gotta go gotta go do this and and I I found that it uh, it helped with that when I first started doing zazen I didn't have any notions about what I was gonna give me so much but then after I did it for a while I started reading books and the books filled me up with weird ideas about having enlightenment experiences and and kind of strange bliss states and whatever uh, and after a while I was going well I'm not having any of those bliss states and enlightenment so I'm going to give up on zazen and I would stop and this happened you know I don't even know how many times four or five times I, I guess where I just said okay done with zazen not going to do that anymore uh, because I wasn't I wasn't trying to be a monk or anything, and every time I stopped doing zazen, I just noticed that my everything got worse. My I was there was too much stuff going on in my head, and I wasn't feeling right, and so I just would always kind of go back to zazen, like okay, I better do that again. <laughs> it took a long time before I became sort of a committed Zen person. It was years. And what made that shift happen? When and how did well, you become committed to this? Well, I mean, I, was, I guess I, guess I, I should uh, choose my words more carefully. I, I was committed to it, uh, f you know, after about five years of on and off, I decided, well, I'm just going to keep doing this. And so in that sense, I was going to do it uh, all the time. But I didn't think of myself as being on track to become a monk or, or a teacher of Zen or any of that. I just found that it was something I liked. And I had a teacher in the U.S., in Ohio, but uh, then I got this job in Japan, and I moved to Japan. And after about a year there, I found uh, a teacher there. And he was the one, after about seven or so years of just going to his Zen classes and kind of not... I participated, and sometimes I got into the discussions, but after a while, I, I had a lot of talks with him personally, with this teacher. And he was the one who wanted me to ordain as a monk and become a teacher, and I at first said, ah, that doesn't sound like something I want to do. But he convinced me to do it, and then I wrote a book about it, and the book got published, and now uh, now this is what I do. <laughs> cool, and I, I'm... Definitely want to hear more about the books, but like taking it a step back, you've just described sitting sasen, but obviously there are teachers and like you can do classes doing this. Is that like a guided sasen or uh, how, how do you oh, no. teach these things? Yeah, there's no there's no guided. I mean, guided meditation is something else, and and it's something I don't really I'm not that interested in, to be honest. Uh, I mean, I've participated in it a couple of times, but I don't like it. So there's no there's no guidance. What what I do when I, I teach, uh, we use the word class just because I don't know what else to call it. But I I or or somebody else, because it's so easy, just explains what I explained to you a few minutes ago about you know sit still, keep your eyes open, etc. And then we do that uh, for thirty minutes together, and after we're done we have a little discussion period. And the discussion periods, I think for some, some people think the discussion periods are the most important thing, but I think the zazen is actually the most important thing. And the discussion period is just to kind of give some people a, a little, uh, I don't know. We'll, we'll talk about what just happened and, and see if we can understand it in that sense. But the understanding of zazen is more is more of the of doing it. That's how you understand it. So so that's what we do. There, I know that there are organizations who break it up into kind of a, a curriculum, but uh, my teachers never did that, and I and I don't do that. So that so we just we just do zazen, and you, it's like learning to swim by somebody throwing you in the pool and saying, "Here, swim," you know. So this is. Uh... So it's interesting because it's a, such a simple thing to do, at least from the way it sounds. And you can, I guess, you know, I would qualify as a noob <laughs> in, yeah. you know, to some extent. But then you can be a teacher and even a monk. What's then the yeah. difference? How do you, what's the monkness of, of Zen? Well, yeah, this... The, it's, it's a kind of a struggle. In English, we have the word priest and we have the word monk. And in Japanese, you have a word bozu, and bozu uh, refers 
to both sometimes it's translated as priest and sometimes it's translated as monk there is no distinction in the zen world it just depends what people prefer but to become a monk uh, usually means you have a relationship with a teacher and you either ask the teacher to to become a monk or or the teacher asks you and depending on where who the teacher is and what their interest is it can be different sort of things uh, in my in my own case all it really involved was doing a ceremony called jukai in which you agree to follow the 10 buddhist precepts which please don't ask me to say them off the top of my head they're very basic things like don't kill don't steal don't lie uh, don't misuse sex is one of them that people worry about there's a, there's a, I don't know how many more, seven more. I don't know how many I said, uh, but they're all very basic things about ethics, which you know are kind of just standard ethical behavior. And you you agree to do that, and you get a new fake name, which you can either use or or not use. I I don't really use mine. I have it on a piece of paper, and sometimes I it? tell people when they ask. Yeah, the obvious. It's question. Odo. Come it's again. Odo. 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 So, yeah, it means the way of responding, responding way. Yeah, so so that's it. Uh, that's a ceremony. In some cases, you might be asked by your teacher to spend time in a in a monastery. My teacher didn't ask me to do that. It depends on who your teacher is. The general tendency in a Zen monastery, as opposed to a, if you become a, a monk in a Catholic monastery, at least my understanding of that is it's a lifetime commitment. So you go into the monastery and you're going to live there. And if you stop living there, then you're not a monk uh, because that's what monks do. They live in monasteries. In, uh, in the Zen sense, so the monastic period is usually brief. Uh, sometimes it's a few months. Sometimes it's a year. It depends on what your teacher does. In my case, it was nothing. But you go there and then you come out of it. And when you come out of it, you you have a, a choice. You you might become a temple priest, in which case, this, this, I'm talking about what happens in Japan, uh, in which you run a temple, like a local temple, uh, for people to come and meditate and do services and, and so forth. In the case of most Western people, uh, we don't we don't end up doing that uh, there's a few exceptions. There are people running Zen monasteries in, in Europe and America, but not too many. For Zen temples, I mean. Uh, so in, in my case, I just I I did that, and I I also had a ceremony which confirmed me as a as a a teacher, which is which is another ceremony in which your teacher symbolically recognizes you as his or her spiritual equal, and therefore capable of teaching to others without any sort of support. Like you can just go off on your own and teach. Hmm. And yeah, that's the simple version. There, there's, of course, if you go by sort of standard old Japanese style versions, it can get much more complicated than that. <laughs> and I've written a few blogs and stuff about that. But, uh, you know, in, in the way I did it was what I just explained. So let's head into the topic of your books. You've you've written a number of books, and I'm gonna ask you to share a few of those book titles because they're amazing. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, why the books? Why are you writing these books? And and what's what's is it one message or is it different messages? Yeah, I, sometimes I don't know. I the first book is called Hardcore Zen, and I. I've been interested in writing since I was uh, long before I got into Zen. So I, you know, I can remember being seven and eight years old writing these little short stories on a on a typewriter and things. So I had this idea to become a writer, but I was sort of failing at it in the sense that I couldn't get anything published. And I was working for Tsuburaya Productions in Japan, and I had a nephew who was fourteen years old at the time, and he was very interested in philosophy. And Zen, he would ask me questions about it. So I wrote a book about Zen with the intention of just giving it to him. And and then I thought, well, maybe I'll, because I worked pretty hard on it, and I thought maybe I'll just uh, print it on a Xerox machine and sell it at, you know, like a fanzine. I don't know if you have that in Europe. But it's the kind of a thing that was, was happening in America where people were making these self-published pamphlets and stuff. 
but in the meantime, or or uh, since I worked so hard on it, I decided to send this to publishers. Now I'd sent a lot of my other books to publishers and just got rejections, so I expected this one to just get more rejections. I was pretty, uh, you know, I didn't really think it was going to go anywhere. And this book that I fully expected to be rejected was the first one that anybody wanted to actually publish. So it came out. And after you do one book, there's always the potential to do a second and a third and whatever. So I did another one a few years later called Sit Down and Shut Up. And Sit Down and Shut Up was actually my original title for Hardcore Zen, but the publishers thought that that was too negative and they, nobody would buy a book called Sit Down and Shut Up. Uh, but I thought sit down and shut up is the essence of Zen practice, you know, because I just explained it to you. Basically, you sit down and you shut up. And and, that, that's <laughs> and that was the book. <laughs> yeah, and that was the book. And it, sit down and shut up was more about the philosophy of Dogen, who's a 13th century Japanese Zen monk who wrote a, a huge amount of material about Zen practice and philosophy. He he died when he was 53 years old, and so he wasn't, even by the standards of his time, he wasn't very old when he died. Uh, probably tuberculosis or something like that killed him. But he wrote so much material, considering how short his life was, that he must have just been constantly, uh, every minute that he wasn't meditating, he was probably writing. And, and he produced this, this huge body of, of philosophy, which is real interesting to me because it was basically lost for years. He, he started a temple, and that temple became quite successful and spawned a lot of other temples. And so the name Dogen was well known for hundreds of years in Japan as the founder, uh, the original founder of this, this temple and this movement. But the things he wrote were basically not read. They weren't published. They were just sitting in boxes until the early 20th century or yeah, early 20th century, about the 1920s, uh, some scholars and people started discovering him and re republishing his work. And 800 years after he died, he, he suddenly became popular. So I wrote this book about Dogen because he's not very well known in the West. Then uh, I did, what was the next book I did? Uh, oh, I think it was Zen Wrapped in Karma Dipped in Chocolate might have been the next one. I might be getting the, the, na the, the order wrong. But there was a commercial on American television for yogurt, and in the commercial, this lady is is sitting in a like a health spa or something, and and saying how delicious this yogurt is, and she says it's like Zen wrapped in karma, dipped in chocolate. You know, it's just such a stupid phrase, and was kind of, to me, a kind of almost typical symbol or example of the way the word Zen has been kind of misused in American society for years to mean just you know, nobody knows what it means. And so I wrote this book about being an actual Zen teacher. So did that. Um, what was the next one? I, I think it was Sex, Sin, and Zen was the next one because I thought this, this Buddhist precept we have called don't misuse sex, it's just usually expressed that way, is is very open-ended and people are kind of confused about what, how, how sex should be handled. So I wrote this book about this, what I understood as the Buddhist ideas around sex. And I wrote one called There is No God and He is Always With You, which is about God. And then I wrote two more books about Dogen, which are called uh, Don't Be a Jerk and It Came From Beyond Zen. And I think those are my books. <laughs> Amazing time. And then, Amazing time. Yeah. Yeah, and they all have crazy covers, except one of them has a normal cover. The The book about God has a normal-looking cover, but the rest of them have these kind of crazy punk rock-looking covers, which which came out because uh, Sit Down and Shut Up, I, I had this, this poster that somebody had done for a talk I gave in Montreal that was really cool. It had a kind of a, a fat Buddha on top of this sort of Godzilla-looking monster, and he's kind of riding it like a cowboy rides a horse. And it was a, such a nice image that I used that for the cover of Sit Down and Shut Up, and then it became sort of expected that every cover of my book would be some kind of a crazy cartoon. And, and I like that, so, so that's what I keep doing. You mentioned how the word Zen is being misused in the U.S. and, I guess, worldwide. Uh, I'd be interested to hear yeah. your views on sort of the Zen trend because I I sense that there is a strong trend connected to this 
uh, connected to you know there's a lot of things connected to well-being and and developing your own consciousness and stuff like that happening yeah. in the western world today yeah zen itself i think is very is a very small player it's it's kind of this funny situation in which people like to use the word zen to refer to all of this stuff that you just mentioned but as for people actually seriously practicing zen i think it's it's a small minority of the of the marketplace the spiritual marketplace that exists now it's been funny to me because I, as I said, I started out in the punk rock scene. And at that point, meditation and things like that, at least in the society I hung around with, was kind of like, uh, we, don't, we don't do that anymore. The hippies used to do that and it failed. And so we're done with that. And so I kind of got into it, but I, I was aware that it was a grow. Then I moved to Japan. I guess that's the other important point. And I was aware that back in America, this this thing was getting bigger and bigger, this, this meditation trend and wellness trend and all that. But I wasn't really part of it because I was in Japan. And coming back to America, I started seeing it. I, I, like I said, I live in Los Angeles, so I can count so many places. Uh, there's a Zen nail salon up the street and Zen sushi. And my favorite one is the Zen marijuana dispensary that, you know, marijuana is now legal in California. And there's a big billboard on, I think, Sunset Boulevard for the Zen marijuana dispensary with a giant green fat Buddha on the, on the poster. So, you know, it's, it's, it's pretty obvious that people are just using this word to, to mean something quite different from the actual practice of, of Zen. But, you know, it's also interesting to see Buddhism being taken seriously in America and started, and Europe, because I, I spend a lot of time in Europe every year, and I can see it happening there, too, where people are starting to go, oh, this is, this is an interesting thing, and they should be interested in it because... You know, when people, when, when Westerners first encountered Buddhism about a hundred years ago, and there's a whole story about how Buddhism sort of came to the West right at the beginning of, of Buddhism, 2,500 years ago, but it didn't catch on. Uh, and then about a hundred years ago, people started looking at it again, but they didn't know what it was. Uh, so they just assumed it was a religion just like our Western religions, you know, where you worship a central guy and you have magic and, and a story about the creation of the world and so forth. But when people started actually researching it, they found out it wasn't like that at all. It was a very different sort of thing. It doesn't fit into the category of a religion, doesn't exactly fit into the category of a philosophy. It's, it's something quite different. Buddha was not a god uh, there, there are some some versions of Buddhism where they do sort of think of Buddha as a god, so I have to admit that. But the mainstream of Buddhism doesn't think of Buddha as a god. They just think he was a, a kind of a genius person who came up with a system for understanding ourselves in the world we live in that works. You know, one of the things that interested me about Buddhism right at the outset was that it had no fear of science. Because... Uh, I was uh, in Ohio, which is in the Midwest of the United States, and it's not the most educated people in the world. They're not, they're not stupid people, but uh, they, their version of Christianity tends to be this, this kind of Christianity that is terrified of science. And it, it, it finds itself at odds with science, so they're always trying to prove that Noah's Ark was real and, and that, I don't know, that dinosaurs didn't exist or uh, or if they did exist they were killed in the flood that noah's ark was on and all this you know this kind of silly stuff and when i found buddhism i found that they didn't they weren't afraid of science they were like oh go oh, science says the earth is is uh, four billion years old that's great that's fine you know <laughs> they didn't worry about that kind of stuff because there was no there was no conflict because they're not that's not the area they're working in they're not trying to prove a story they're trying to provide a way of finding out what your actual life in this moment really is without even telling you what it is you know they don't say okay god created you and you're a servant of god who is supposed to do this and that they just say here sit down look at this wall keep your mind open and see what this really is without somebody telling you what it is and and i thought that was great so uh, this to me is interesting and i think it's I think it is uh, the core and concept of this podcast, even though, you know, I haven't really clearly set out what it is. But 
um, the theme mm. of understanding what you are, what this is. And um, if you were to sort of summarize this system that Buddhism offers in order for us to to understand this or, or achieve this, um, beyond the sasan practice, is there is there more to this? You know, what's the What's the elevator pitch of this system for mm. anyone who will not go deep into Buddhism but wants the the quick podcast version fix of it? Yeah, I don't know. It, it, it they they say that Zen Buddhism has more literature than any other uh, philosophy in the world. I heard that somewhere. So you know, more than Christianity, more than Aristotelian, whatever. You know, probably more even than than science you know there's so much written about it so it's very difficult to kind of distill it easily but dogen has this idea that the way my teacher explained it he would say dogen would look at any philosophical proposition or anything that happens in four ways he would look at it subjectively objectively in the realm of action and in reality itself which is this is gets really complicated but there's a subjective side to your experience and which is your internal experience which is you know your thoughts and your feelings and your sensations and all of that the things that are that are just happening to you and there's the external uh, part of your situation which is the the material aspect you know there's a bookshelf in front of me and there's a room that i'm in and there's planet earth below me and there's my body and there's there's all this sort of objective stuff and in any real thing that happens you are you are experiencing both of these sides simultaneously to the point where you can't really separate them the separation of the two is kind of an illusion and 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 that illusion is where most religions live they say okay your soul is separate from your body and and pay attention to your soul or other philosophies like materialism say that your your soul is non-existent and the only thing that matters is what's going on in the material world uh, but buddhism says these are both mistaken they're they're both at the same time and the way you discover that is through action when you when you take action including the action of sitting down and doing zazen which seems like non-action but it is an action because you're there and you're doing it even though you're just sitting still uh, that's where you you find both of these things are happening simultaneously and can't be separated and reality is what we call the the realization the 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 understanding that body and mind are the same thing uh, subjective and objective are ultimately the same thing uh, you, you can get you can get really spooky and esoteric with it you know to 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 say that consciousness which we think of as being separate between you know you have your consciousness jose has his consciousness i have my consciousness uh, that's also an illusion that there is one consciousness that is functioning through all of us and through infinite uncountable things throughout the universe which as far as we know seems to go on forever and that this place we're living in is mystical and weird and there's this idea that there a lot of people one of the things that one of the problems that happens in meditation is people think well this world is just mundane and not interesting and we're going to have an, a meditation experience that's going to take us away from this world whereas the the zen point of view and the pure buddhist point of view says no this world is crazy the the very fact that you exist at all is is incredible and is worth looking into you know you don't you don't need to go somewhere else and and find you know the great pearl at the bottom of the ocean the the fact that you are sitting in a room looking at your fingers you know i don't know what people look at when they're sitting in a room that's that's amazing you know that there's no precedent for that in the in the history of the universe that the your being alive right now is is something uh, that you should pay attention to because that's amazing <laughs> you know you're you're alive and you don't know what you are or who you are or why you're here and that's and that's worth just paying attention to and there's no answer <laughs> there's no answer somebody's going to give you where they go okay it's like this you're you know all those answers are just stupid there is just this thing that's happening this is more like a question than an answer i guess yeah. 
Yeah, it's a question, and it's it's kind of directing you to to say to to look into this question. There there are ways. There is Zen. There's the koan system, which I don't really get into much. Well, I do, I guess. But there's the koan system in in Zen is where where they ask ridiculous questions and and which can't be answered, which can be answered, but can't be answered in any sort of standard way. Do you have an example of such uh, a question? Well, the one I always talk about is the one my teacher told me, my first teacher told me, which is he snapped his fingers. He said, where was that sound before you heard it? After you heard it, where did it go? And of course, what kind of answer can you give to that? But it's a it's a question that directs you into immediate experience, which is like, here I am, what is this? And sometimes you put it in a funny way to kind of get people's intellect engaged in in trying to answer something until they realize they can't solve it. And all you can do is just look at what's actually happening rather than this abstract version that your your teacher gave you to mess with you. That's a really great question. I had uh, actually someone had written this on a wall. I'd like to think it was in a, you know, a public toilet. Definitely wasn't, but it's in my mind it would be nice if it was. And uh, uh, the question uh, was just a standard question of uh, who are you? But then yeah. with the addition of and how do you know? Which I thought was beautiful. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's, that's, that's the question. And you know, if you work with these questions for a while, you realize there isn't really any one answer except direct experience and and your your direct experience in this moment is exactly what it is and it, the entire universe is included in this experience the the this experience of of us talking or this experience in, of people listening to the podcast the whole universe has come together to make this happen and if you start to notice that you go whoa this is not you know i just thought i was unimportant and i i was just a guy who was doing things but you find out that oh i'm the actual center of the universe you know but but you can't get too egotistical about that because everybody else is also the center of the universe and your neighbor's cat is the center of the universe and the guys collecting garbage which you've probably been hearing in the background those are the center of the universe too but so are you. <laughs> so, so it's, it's kind of amazing. So this this yeah. um, this brings up three uh, separate questions in my mind. I'll I'll go through them one by one. The way you describe Buddhism rings very true to all the things that I'm personally uh, exploring in 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 my viewpoint of this existence. How Ooh. in your uh, in your view, uh, based on Buddhism or just based on your own emotions and opinions? Does this create purpose for the individual or the opposite, like lack of purpose? Is there purpose? Yeah, I mean, you know, this is a kind of a funny thing. I mean, there is purpose, but it's not the same. It, it, the way people usually think of purpose is it's somewhere off somewhere else. Like my purpose is to get from this point to another point. Like I want to get rich and I'm not rich. So I, I'm going to, my purpose is to get rich or I'm not enlightened and I want to get enlightened. So my purpose is to get enlightened. But the purpose it provides is actually much deeper, which is that my purpose is to be exactly what I am in this moment as purely as I can be. And so if I'm trying anything at any given moment, that's what I'm trying to do. So it's so when we say there's no goal, it's not like we kind of go, okay, we might as well just sit around and play video games all day because there's no goal. For me, it's exactly the opposite. I feel like I I should try to do something important at every minute. And, and I should try to see what I'm doing at every minute as being important. So if I'm standing around waiting for the bus, I'm going to try to be purely standing around waiting for the bus and make that the most important action in the universe. <laughs> you know, it, is, it makes life very weird. Yeah, and that, that actually yeah, brings that, me that to brings the me second to question, which, which question, is how, you know, once you start doing this practice, once you start realizing these things, then how do you... Um, what's your then your relation to the you know society that we live in? Yeah, I guess I guess it. What what you notice is that the society you live in and and you are not two separate things. So 
you are sort of flowing together with everyone that you encounter. And so this is where the ethics come in. You want to behave as well as possible towards anyone that you you meet. So you, you're trying to do your best in any moment. But it doesn't necessarily mean you, you're going to do something spectacular. Well, that's a funny... I don't know why that... Um, Garbage guys are done, but, probably. Celebrating. I so. I don't know. Anyway, so... Uh, so, so you're just trying to do to do this thing, and and some people kind of get into this what's called engaged Buddhism, where they're trying to go, you know, help the starving children in Africa or whatever, which is nice, you know. There's nothing wrong with that, but I I think it's also engaged Buddhism is, you know, if if my if my neighbor, as she did the other day, said her cat is lost, I'll go out and look for the cat. You know, um, that's also engaged Buddhism, and and it's just as important in its own way as going to Africa and vaccinating all the children, you know, or whatever you know people think they ought to do. Uh, any 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 action you take is significant. So you know, if you're at the grocery store and you're paying for your box of breakfast cereal, you try to do that in a way that is pure and exhibits you know this kind of quality of of action you know, you're trying to do everything in in that way that's nice it uh, i did a previous episode about this theory that i have of everything which is i'm not going to go into that because then we'll spend another hour talking about that but but uh feel free to listen to it instead basically it's it's uh, i see everything as an energy field and everything also at the same time as a particle inside an energy field inside a particle inside an energy field but this um sort of buddhism is exactly the same thing but described in in a more connected to the human being kind of way yeah. yeah, I mean, you can conceive of it any way you want, uh, and and some conceptions are better than others. And what you just said sounds sounds good to me because I, I think we we forget. Some, sometimes I've I've described it as waves. Like you could look, and this is sort of a standard thing in Buddhism, but you could kind of look at the ocean and watch the waves, and you could name each wave and say, you know, this is Bob the wave, and it started at this time and it ended on this time, and. That's true, but we also know that waves are just a part of what the ocean does, and and that's the way human beings are. We are we have a beginning and an ending, but we are also part of a process that is much deeper than than we ourselves. So even though, you know, Brad started on one day and will end on another day, nothing is subtracted from the ocean when the wave crashes. So nothing is subtracted from the universe when when I pass away. Uh, but but the other thing about Zen is we try not to speculate too much on like life after death or things like that because you realize that you can just you can speculate all day long and you you either have evidence or you don't have evidence and there's not really much evidence for that stuff. So we just kind of go okay, well something probably happens, but I don't know what it is. <laughs> That's actually, that answered my third question. So I, I don't, even though this is called a dying podcast, I don't always talk about death or ask the people I, you know, have a conversation with uh, their views on death. But this conversation really brought that up in me that I wanted to hear your thoughts on it. But I think you just answered that unless there's anything you want to add to it. No, that's pretty much it. It's, it's a kind of a, a funny thing. It's when you look at Buddha himself he kind of started everything and when he was asked because they, they that's what you ask a religious teacher you ask them about what happens after we die and he refused to answer that question he seems to have had some belief in a in a kind of continuity which is usually uh, turned in you know in popular culture in the west turned into an idea of reincarnation and living multiple lives and he seems to have kind of accepted that 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 happens but he never really speculated on details of it or anything like that and and uh, and that's the way the zen approach is if i actually spent one chapter of my book don't be a jerk trying to look at dogen's view of what happens after you die because he's he's quite interesting there are there are passages in his work in which he explicitly says 
what does he say? He says, firewood, when it's burned, becomes ash. It does not return to being firewood again. Similarly, when people die, they do not return to life again. And and he has a few statements similar to that, which sounds like, okay, he doesn't believe in anything like a, an afterlife. And then he has other passages in his same books in which he describes uh, people reincarnating and, and uh, having experiences following their deaths you know, in which they're in the, this realm or that realm. And uh, looking at this, I came to the, to the conclusion that I think Dogen did believe in, in something that you might reasonably call an afterlife, if you really want to characterize that it that way. But he didn't think it was important. Uh, he thought what was really important was this life uh, that we're leading, leading now. And when he does talk in terms of anything you might call the afterlife, he's saying that you have to pay the same kind of attention even after you die as you're paying attention now. You know, there's one passage where he says that and uh, you don't want to miss anything. So you, you're trying to be fully present in every situation. So you should basically do zazen when you're dead too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he kind of says that. I mean, he says something a little different, but it's it, it kind of amounts to, yes, keep doing zazen even after you die, <laughs> which is quite an interesting proposition. Yeah, I mean, I guess the <laughs> practice of zazen in itself with its focus on the presence sort of makes death irrelevant in a way because you know well when in a way in, well in a way it's also very relevant because we're constantly dying so depends on how you choose yeah. to look at it um cool thank you uh brad this is um it's already gone almost an hour uh, into this conversation yeah. and i don't want to i don't want to take more of your time to me this is a really interesting area and um, you've managed to explain it at least to me and i hope people listening will agree in a way that makes it clear and understandable but also this is me personally speaking it rings very very true so i i really want to say thank you for this conversation and sort of bringing new perspectives and new uh, shining new light on the questions that i ask myself and others in this podcast so thanks for that well thank you yeah thanks for having me uh, cool. Is there anything else you want to say or add that you feel, well, Nils, you completely missed the point on this or didn't ask me about this or, you know, anything else you want to say to, to people listening? Not really. I mean, the best way, if, you, if you're interested in, if people are interested in finding more about what I'm doing, I have a, a blog, which is hardcorezen.info, I-N-F-O, info, because we couldn't get .com. Uh, so, Everything is linked to there. There's information about my books and there's an ongoing blog and there's a YouTube channel and all kinds of stuff. Great. So hardcoredsend.info is well worth a visit. Yeah. Thank you, Brad, and enjoy your morning. Yeah, thank you. Thank you.